kind of a weird feeling standing up here this morning because we are not going to be in Psalms. And we are not going to be in Psalm 119. Um, if you want to go back and listen to any of those, especially the Psalm 119, they are all now posted on sermonaudio.com. And you can go out there and listen to them again. I probably need to to figure out what I said if I didn't, you know. I followed the notes right or whatever. <clears throat> but I looked, and the last time we, you know, as we started in the Psalms, we started doing the Psalms in Israel, well, David in the Psalms, and then we, we got through the life of David, and now we are doing Israel after David in the Psalms. And the last time we did in Israel after David, if I have my records right, was, was May 15th. So it's been a while since we've been in 2 Kings. So we're going to go back to 2 Kings probably for this week and next week. And I, I don't know after that. That's way too far ahead for me to be thinking. But where we left off in, uh, in May was in 2 Kings. And I want to do a little bit of, of rewind. A little bit of... of, of Review, not in a great depth, to get us kind of up to speed. And so, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter nine, we're going to begin there and go quickly through some things we already covered. But it's important to know what that base is, so when we get to Second Kings eleven, it it fits in and makes a little more sense. So, what we have in Second Kings nine. Verse 1 to 13 is we have that Jehu was anointed king. Now we are talking about the kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom. At this time Jehu was the king of the southern kingdom. In verse 9 it says, And Elisha the prophet, verse nine, chapter 9 verse 1, says, Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take a flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you over king of Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. And that's what he did. We don't know who this emissary of Elisha was but Elisha wasn't the only sole prophet you know he took one of the sons of the prophets that they lived together and he took these things and went in and anointed Jehu as king and in the next few verses we see what happened and so uh, Jehu was anointed king and when he was anointed in verse 11 of 2 Kings 9, he says, He came out to the servants of his master, and they said, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he spoke, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. So he went out. The people said, Who was that guy? Well, what did he do? Jehu, you know what he did. No, we don't know what he did. 
Well, he anointed me king over Israel. So Jehu wasn't expecting it. They weren't expecting it. But what was their response? Verse 13, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So they accepted it very readily. And that's the first 13 verses of 9. Then we have Jehu's reign. And that starts in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 14, and it goes through chapter 10, verse 35. The first thing that Jehu did was that he slew Joram and Ahaziah. And we see this in 2 Kings 9, 14 to 29. And um, what we see here thus in verse 14, Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of wounds that the Syrians had given him. So there was a war between Israel and, and Syria. And the king then, Joram, was wounded. And so, Jehu said, or Je, but King Joram returned to be healed to Jezreel by the wounds the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, he's talking to his people here, his, his men, this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city, go and tell the news in Jezreel. So Jehu mounted his chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So we had the king of Judah, and we had the king of Israel in Jezreel, and Jehu went out to confront Joram. And he told his men, go there and make sure no one leaves the city. We don't want him getting away. And he also told him to be quiet about his intention because secrecy was to be maintained. And so he went flying up to Jezreel in verse 17. A watchman was standing in the tower and saw a company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, no, Joram was the king, healing in Jezreel. He said, take a horseman, send to meet him and let him say it is peace. The horseman went out and asked Jehu if it's peace. And Jehu said in verse 18, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. In other words, no, it's not peace. Join me or face the consequences. And I'm not going to let you go back and tell Joram that it's not peace, by the way. And the watchman reported, and the, uh, and the, so the watchman was watching this off the tower, and he saw the guy went in there, but then the, the, the messenger didn't come back. So then the messenger is not coming back. Verse 19. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them. Is it peace? What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride with me. And again the watchman reported. He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So he was known. He was not an unknown commodity. And somehow he must have been pretty proficient with the chariot 
and they could tell if that's what, you know, that that was him coming. So Joram says, well, get my chariot ready, let's go out and meet him. And Joram uh, asked the same question, is it peace? Well, he knew the answer, you know, no, it wasn't. Um, it's very interesting where they met, we're not going to go into all this, but where they met, where, where Joram met Jehu was in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which was the property that Ahab and Jezebel stole. And, and Joram is, of course, uh, their son. So it, it's just kind of interesting how God plays all these things, plays all these things out. Anyway, um, now, basically, the time was coming for the judgment of God upon Ahab to come to fruition because God told Ahab in 2 Kings 19 or 1 Kings 19 that he was going to annihilate Ahab's house and his line because of his actions against Naboth and the reason he didn't kill Ahab right then is because Ahab repented Ahab Ahab responded in humility and God said okay I'll let you live but your line is going to get annihilated. So, back to Second Kings twenty-two. Jehu answered, "What peace can there be as long as whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many?" Now, the words "whorings" and "sorceries" are commonly used metaphors for idolatry and witchcraft. And that's what Jezebel was into. And we see that from 1 Kings 16. And uh, when Ahab married Jezebel, Jezebel brought in all her Baal worship and the Asherah and all that kind of stuff. And in verse 33 of 1 Kings 16, it says, Ahab made... Or Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And some of those kings of Israel who were before him were not good guys. So, I mean, it was just a, just a much worse and getting, getting worse. So, there cannot and will not be peace. Joram realized that in verse 23. He reigned about and fled, and Jehu threw his drew his bow at full strength. Now, these weren't compound bows. You had to have a little bit of strength in your arms to pull it back. I could maybe shoot an arrow from here to the three things three or four feet away, but they were a little stronger than that. He drew his bow at full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. So Jehoram, or Joram, was, was done. Now, he had taken Ahaziah with him, which was the king of Israel or Judah, and this is why we have to get to this story because that'll come out in First Kings, Second Kings eleven, and and so uh, Ahaziah skedaddled it out of there, but they they went against him and they ended up killing him as well. Now. Uh, uh, 
Jehu was not told by God to kill Ahaziah, but he did. And Ahaziah was still, he was uh, related because he married one of Ahab's daughters. So if he just killed his son, well, you know, that's his brother-in-law. So, I mean, things, things were getting a little dicey in there. Anyway, so that's what happened real quickly there. And in verse 2 Kings 9, 27 to 29, it says, When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. Now, just just real quickly, it's about six miles or so that he got shot. And he kept on going before he got to where he died. But he died. The next thing we see that Jehu did in Second Kings 9 is he slayed Jezebel. And this is an interesting uh, story of what happened if you might remember it if you were here back in May but Jezebel is still around you know Ahab was dead now her son was dead her son-in-law was dead but she knows she still needs to be dealt with for her um, dealings against God So, and the narrative continues in verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she, this is interesting, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. So she has this guy, she knows he's not going to come there and say, hey, let's go have lunch. (laughs) Right? So she sits, looked out the window, and painted her eyes and adorned her head. Now, MacArthur points out in that culture at at that time, women would paint their eyelids with a black powder mixed with oil. It was applied with the brush, and it gives their eyes an enlarged effect, so they had bigger eyes. Googly eyes, maybe. I don't know. Probably not. Googly eyes. He stated, uh, MacArthur did, Jezebel's appearance gave the air of a royal audience, perhaps, to awe Jehu. She probably recognized her end was upon her, yet she remained defiant and arrogant to the last. And one reason we know that she was defiant is when Jehu showed up in verse 31, he entered the gate. Jezebel said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? You murdered your king. To clarify what Jezebel was saying, Zimri was the commander of half of the chariots of King Elah of Israel. And after Elah had reigned for two years, Zimri had conspired against him. And now she's comparing Jehu to Zimri. So Jezebel, it shows that she was aware that Jehu had killed Joram and was proclaimed king of Israel, just like Zimri had done. So she's comparing all that. And in, in, and in his reply, we read in verse 32, And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? This is the interesting part. Well, one of the interesting parts. 
Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, now she was looking out the window with her face all painted up, right? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, because they were with Jezebel, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered or spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then we see, you know, the Bible is very graphic. You know, it tells you what happened, right? It's not being the politically correct. You know, she slipped on a banana peel and fell out the window. No. They threw her down, and then, then, then look what Jehu did. Then he went in and ate and drank. I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, let's eat. He clearly was not impacted negatively by what he had done. He did it, we're done. And he said, see how this cursed woman, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. The only reason he cared was she was a, she was a king's daughter, she was a king of Syria's daughter. Well, we need to treat her right or the king of Syria will get all upset. Not, never, never mind the fact that we threw her out the window. Okay. And so, and he, he did that while he was uh, eating and drinking her at the end of his meal. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back, they told him, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elisha the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. So he didn't even know that that was what was prophesied, but that's what happened. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. So she is gone. And that was a big deal in those days, you know, to be... To not have your body taken care of was considered the ultimate insult. And that's what God did through Jehu. Then we go on, the next thing that, that uh, Jehu did, and again, this is all review from May, is he slew Ahab's family. And we see this in 2 Kings 10, verses 1 to 2. Remember, God said that all of Ahab's family, Ahab's line would be destroyed because of Ahab's sin. It hadn't been destroyed yet. In fact, Ahab had 70 sons. That's a lot. They didn't all come from Jezebel. Okay, Came from a lot of people. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's son, and set them on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. So what he did, we see in verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him, so how can we stand? They're talking, they're afraid of Jehu. So he was over the palace, and when he was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, 
sent to Jehu saying, We are your servants. We will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. We're not going to promote another king here. You're king. We got it. We'll do, do whatever is good in your eyes. So they said, Jehu, tell us what to do. We're, we're going to follow you. We're not going to you know, replace Joram with one of, his, you know, one of the 70 sons of Ahab. And then, they were, after they were in complete control, Jehu sent him a second letter. If you are on my side, if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's son and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's son's 70 persons were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came to him, they had brought the heads of the king's son. He said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Again, very graphic. That happened a lot in that time. It seems barbaric to us. <coughs> Why were heads delivered, cut off and delivered and put in two heaps at the entrance of the city gate? Well, in the ancient Near East, one commentator noted that Often, pillars of heads were done to intimidate the inhabitants and to discourage rebellion. Don't try this. Okay? It was effective. It could have spread a little disease too, but it was effective. Then in the morning, verse 9, he went out and he stood and he said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these. Know then that there shall fall to earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the word of the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he has said by his servant Elijah. So he went, <coughs> he went then and said, you guys, you don't have to worry about this. I'm not going to come and kill you. I'm following the commandment of Elijah. Then he went a little bit further than what Elijah told him, or a lot, depending on how you back to 1 Kings verse 11, 2 Kings 10 or 11. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezebel, and all his great men and his close friends. Now, these people were not part of the physical line of Ahab, but could have been their buddies, and he didn't want to trust them, and so he, he wiped them out. And his priests, until he left, none remaining. The next thing we see that Jehu did is that he slew Ahaz's relatives. And that's in 2 Kings 10, 12-17. to 17. So he's not done. Jehu's not done. And he sent out and went to Samaria in verse 12. And on the way, while he was at Beth Echt of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah. Now this is the king of Judah. And said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. Well, the queen's mother would be Jezebel. 
And he said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Aked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. So he was clean in house. This was above what he was told by God to do. This part. The next thing, we jump down a little bit more. In 2 Kings 10, verse 18, Jehu struck down struck down the prophets of Baal. And this is starting in verse 18. So Jehu set out to eliminate Baal worship in Israel. And because he was striking the prophets of Baal in 2 Kings 10, it's clear that the actions of Elijah on Mount Carmel, when they killed 450 of these guys, I think that's the number, um, hadn't destroyed Baal worship because they were back. You know, a few years after Elijah. And so, back to Second Kings, verse 18, says, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but I will serve him much, or Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal and all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not uh, uh, whoever is missing shall not live. In other words, if you don't show up, I'll kill you. So you better show up. Right? This is not a an optional meeting. Okay? We're having a Baal worship convention and you better be there if you're a Baal Baal person. So, But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worships of worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Can you imagine the excitement that those guys had? Wow. This is going to be cool. Jehu's going to really worship Baal, and he's called us, and we're going to have this special celebration, and everything. So it'll be great. I, I got to believe that they were just excited. <clears throat> and then he set his plan in motion in verse 22, and this plan was carried out without a hitch. No problems. So he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. So put on your religious garb. What's that going to do? It's going to tell you, this is a Baal guy, this is not. Yeah. Right? right? Pretty much. <clears throat> so then Jehu, Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only worshipers of Baal. So his, his guys, make sure all we got is Baal guys in here. Well, they could tell because they got all the vestments on. They're just, they're partying hardy, right? <laughs> then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And I'm going to go back. We did this a little bit. Um, but I'm going to go back again. There's a there's an article I read on the real reason Israel worshipped Baal. Um, and basically what he said in this article, and I won't read the whole article. You, you can go to crosswalk.com and type it in and read it. 
Basically, they did it because of economics. Because Baal was the god. He was called the rider of the clouds who brought rain and blessed the earth. So if Baal showed up, the heavens rained oil and the rivers ran with honey and mothers gave birth to healthy children and even the dead could be raised, they thought. So they thought, well, yeah, we got God, but we can serve Baal here too because, you know, that's going to help our crops and that, that, that. So they were merging. They were merging Baal with the worship of Yahweh. And we see Ahab did this. You know, if you go back and read through, a lot of people did that. And so they were, they were not totally rejecting God, but they were uh, probably still, <laughs> this article says, they're probably still going to church, paying tithes, and, and <laughs> saying a prayer or two now and then. You know, doing those religious things, but they're also doing this. And God doesn't like that. And his point, and I think it's a pretty good point in this article, is that <clears throat> they did it because they wanted good crops. They wanted uh, uh, abundance. And, you know, he, he goes in and says, you know, the New Testament teaches that money and greed are often the loudest and most appealing idols seeking our attention. And we have that today. <coughs> especially in the uh, New Apostolic Reformation and the Prosperity Gospel. They're worshiping both. I mean, I have, I've, I've listened to a, a video of one guy, a preacher who is extremely, ridiculously wealthy, standing up in front of his congregation and saying, money, 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 with a big grin as people are throwing money on the, on the stage. Okay? Well, that's in a sense that's very similar to what they were doing here where they were trying to tie in this Baal worship to worship of God he said well I can worship God God of the Bible I can say the word Jesus Christ but I also God wants me wealthy and prosperous they're doing the same thing today but it's a diff it's the same merging of two ideas of let's let's have money and let's also worship God but very interesting article, you know, when, when you read about it. Um, and if you go through the New Testament many, many times, you cannot worship money in God. You can't. If you try to do that, God's going to not get your worship, and you'll, you'll be failing because of that. But anyway, <clears throat> that's kind of what was going on in Israel. <clears throat> So Jehu went in there with all these worship of, of Baal and in verse 24 of chapter 10 it says now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said the man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. You're not going to back out. If you don't do your job you're dead. That's motivation. Okay. For as soon as he had made an end of offering, so he went in and made this end of offering, the burnt offering. He's playing out the part. Jehu said to the guard and the officers, go in and strike them down and let not a man escape. So they put them to the sword. Now, I've got to you know, doubt very much that those guys had any weapons on them. These priests in liturgical garments. 
So they went and put them to the sword, and the officers cast them out and went to the inner rooms of the house of Baal, and they brought out a pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it, and he demolished the pillar of Baal, and they demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Okay? There's a few worship places in this world that would be better off as a latrine than they would be for the false worship that goes on in them. Now, real quickly, if you want to go back to Judges, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. That sounds pretty good. And who had seen the great work of the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. But then we have a change. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They heard of it, but it wasn't in their hearts. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This is where Baal worship came in. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in the Ashtaroth. Now that happened about 1380 B.C. with Joshua. What we have here, when Jehu came to power, he came to power in about 850 B.C. So we have 520 some years of Baal worship in Eden. Israel. 500 years. That's a lot. But verse 28 of 2 Kings 10, it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. It had been going on for 500 years. And then after that, we have Israel's decline starting in 2 Kings 10, 19 to 36. All that good that Baal did, he followed God's, he followed God's leading in, uh, in getting rid of Ahab. He got rid of all Ahab's house. He got rid of Jezebel. He cleared out the Baal and destroyed it. It says, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, who was the first king of Israel, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. So, we could go in uh, there, but again, we went through that one time of why they had those golden calves. And again, that was to try to, uh, Jeroboam made them because he wanted to, as the kingdom started, he wanted to keep that, keep that kingdom from going and worshiping in Jerusalem because he thought then they'd come back and try to rise up against him. So he made these golden calves saying, 
told this this represents our God. He wasn't bringing in a new God. He was bringing in idolatry and saying that represents God. And it didn't. And God said, don't do that. <clears throat> so it was idolatry. It was very similar to trying to marry Baal and God together. Well, they were trying to marry these golden calves and God together. So that real quickly is the reign of Jehu. The rest of the acts of Jehu, verse 34, that he did, and all his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles? So he slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. That is a long introduction. Okay, that's what we covered for a while. But now we're getting into Joash's reform. Now the first thing we need to know, we're in 2 Kings 11. The first thing we need to know <coughs> excuse me, is that we're talking about the kingdom of Judah now. We've been dealing with Israel this whole time. Now we're in Judah. And in the kingdom of Judah, a usurper, much more unusual than Jehu, emerges. Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter, seizes control during the crisis caused by Jehu's assassination of Ahaziah. So we just went over that a little bit. <coughs> when Jehu killed Joram, he also killed Ahaziah. And his mother said, hmm, how is the prime time to strike? And she did. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, and if I say the wrong words and get them out of order, just you know, rearrange them in your mind. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. Hmm. Nice person to have as your mother or mother-in-law or aunt or whatever. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah. So the sister, this, this would have been her sister-in-law. <coughs> took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him in his and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now the first thing we need to know, if Athaliah was not a descendant of David, which means she had no right to the throne of Israel, the throne of Judah. She was the only person ever in the line of the kings of Judah to ever claim the throne or assume the throne who was not a descendant of David. She was also the only woman to be a monarch. Most people, if you ask them, who did, did Israel have or did Judah have a, a queen and not a king or a female monarch? Yeah, they did for six years. And her name was Athaliah. <clears throat> And once she found out what Jehu had done to her son, Ahaziah, and that was the one that he, he shot and then, you know, he went and died in Jezreel, she took no time in springing into action. 
we don't see that there was any mourning. Oh, my son's dead. Like, oh, now time to act. <clears throat> and when we look at her actions, we see a lot of her mother Jezebel in her. You can kind of say, hmm, that apple didn't fall very far from the tree. <clears throat> she acted quickly, decisively, and cruelly. And I have to think that she did this not alone. She had her henchmen, her people that were helping her do that, who aided her in her cruelty. This would make for a great TV show or a movie. It really would. I mean, I thought about this. Well, yeah, that would be pretty, pretty neat. Now, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of Joram, who Jehu had killed in 2 Kings 9, was also the sister of Ahaziah. And she took him and hid him successfully for six years. Now, he was probably like one year old or less when she took him. We're not talking, you know, you're talking. How many of you would like to try to hide a one, two, three, four, five-year-old? Huh, good luck. <clears throat> now, you would also think, or I would, that Athaliah would have been counting all the king's sons that she was killing. i got to make sure i got this list, and I've checked them all off. But she didn't. For some reason, Joash was able to escape. From some human reason, but from a divine perspective, it was easy to see why he was able to avoid persecution. Or persecution, execution. That's because God was going to preserve the kingly line of David, as he promised. Because Joash was it. If Joash died, guess what? The Messiah is not going to be coming from the line of David. Because there wasn't the line of David. So, <clears throat> that changes it being able to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you think Satan was behind this a little bit? Yeah, a lot. At this point, it was being held by a thread, humanly speaking, and Satan was trying his best to eliminate the coming Messiah. And this is 840 years before Jesus was born. 840 years. 1200, right? Time of the Crusades. That long ago. If the kingly line of David could, could be broken, the Messiah couldn't come. Now turn to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> this is kind of interesting and it got me off on a rabbit trail. I do that sometimes. But I'm going to take you with me. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 to 17, we have what some people might think is a pretty boring section of the Bible. But there's a reason it's there. What we have there is the royal descent or the royal genealogy of Jesus. Starting in verse 2. Abraham was born to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his brothers, and on and on and on. Okay? You get to verse 8. And Asa was born Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat Joram, and Joram Uzziah. And Uzziah was born Jotham, and Jotham to Ahaz, and Ahaz, Hezekiah, and so on. Where is Joash? Not there. So... 
I had to ask myself, well, where is Joash? Why isn't he there? You know? It's very interesting. I, 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 I had to Google this. I said, why does Matthew skip names in the genealogy of Jesus? And he skipped three names. Three names. He skipped Joash and Hamaziah and um, uh, Azariah. Matthew writes that from David, if you go back to Matthew in uh, verse 17, from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. Yet First Chronicles lists 17 generations. Was Matthew wrong? Do we have an error in the Bible? No. And this person who wrote this, and I'm going to read this. I'm not going to read it all because it goes on for a ways. Before answering that question, we should define what the problem is or appears to be. In his genealogy, Matthew skips the three offspring that follow Joram, Ahaziah, Joash, and Ahamaziah. The gospel simply states, Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah is another name for Azariah, the fourth generation from Joram. And Christians have constantly recognized this three-name gap in Matthew's genealogy, but has not caused a great problem for Christian interpreters. Now, the guy, I never heard of this guy. His name was Hilary of Poitiers, and he lived from 310 to 368 A.D. We're talking 250 years after Christ, a long time ago. He says, he explains this. <clears throat> it was done in this way because Jehoram, or Joram, begot Ahaziah from a pagan woman, that is, from the household of Ahab. And it was declared by the prophet that not, now this, it was declared by the prophet that not until the fourth generation would anyone from the household of Ahab sit on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. And he says, he is right. Joram married a daughter of Ahab. We learn that her name was Athaliah. Now scripture tells us that Ahab's line was cut off from reigning for four generations and Jehu's son would rule over Israel. And that's 2 Kings all the way through that. And he says it turns out the offspring of Ahab would not reign in Judah, also not reign in Judah. If Athaliah represents the first generation of Ahab, then the next three offspring of her would be Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Amaziah would be the fourth generations, and there are exact three people in Matthew that Matthew omits from his genealogy. Hillary explained it this way, By removing the disgrace of a pagan family and bypassing its ancestry, the royal origin of those who follow in the fourth generation is then counted. Okay? So it kind of ties in to something that you'd have never tied into that back in in uh, the prophecies against Ahab. That's why it's not there. I thought it was an interesting little sidelight. Because I can guarantee you that nobody here had ever asked that question before. <clears throat> okay. Going on. Where are we here? 
So, one thing I thought about when I was reading uh, the verses 1 to 3 is how do you keep a young child hidden in secret for six years? Because verse simply simply states, and this is so, one thing I really love about the Bible, and that sometimes it states things so simply. Like, in the beginning God created. Okay. Okay, that's not a simple task. <clears throat> but, it said, verse 3, And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Six years. You know that there had to be a lot of people involved, not just one person. Other people had to know and understand this. But no one was going to divulge the secret. Perhaps because there was not widespread support for Athaliah and her monarchy. And I'm thinking about that. You know, you, regardless of what you think of our current president, it seems like he's been in office for a long time. He hasn't even been in in two years yet. We're talking six years. Okay? So this is just getting started, you know, for, for, you know, it's a long time. Six years is not just keeping them for a month or over a weekend. It's a long time. But then we have in 2 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 4, another simple statement. But in the seventh year, Jehoadiah sent and brought the captains of the Kerites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. Now Jehoadiah was a priest. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. Ooh. But that was a surprise. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath, guard the king's house. And another third being at the gate sewer, and a third at the gate behind the guard shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Anybody comes up and tries to stop you, kill him. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The six years is going to be up. Now, many of you might have asked, who are the Karaites? Okay. The name Karaites occurs twice in the Bible. 2 Kings 11.4 here and then later on in this passage in 19. And it refers to an elite class of warriors. It's not clear whether they were imported from another people or had risen from internally from within Judah. But they had held a special status due to a covenant that the high priest Jehoadiah made with them in order to preserve the monarchy of Joash. Now, like I said, like I said, Joash was a priest, and he was the leader in restoring the monarchy to the Davidic line. We don't normally think of a priest as being the person who's going to restore the monarchy. Leading the charge, bringing in the guards, telling them how we were going to do this change in power, telling them to kill people. I mean, that's not how we normally think of as a priest, but that's the role that Jehoadiah did. He used the temple guards to overthrow Athaliah, who had been in power for, again, six years. 
Now, the fact that this was successfully carried out indicates to me that these people were none too happy to oust Athaliah. Even if it meant making a seven-year-old as their king. Think about that. Paul House wrote this. He said, apparently Athaliah has no, has no retail or uh, retail, real military or religious support. The coup is to take place during the changing of the guard in order to maximize the military presence. So then in verse 9, we keep on reading. The captains did according to all. The captains did according to all that Jehoadiah the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath. And those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. And <coughs> came to Jehoadiah. Jehoadiah the priest and the priest gave the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's which were in the house of the Lord and the guards stood every man with his weapons in his hand from the south side of the house to the north side of the house and around the altar and on the house on behalf of king in the house on behalf of the king then he brought out the king's son and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. His plans go off without a hitch. And interestingly, he provides the men with the spears and the shield that had been whose? David's. Now David reigned from 1010 to 970 B.C. Now it's 835 B.C. So these weapons would have been kept and preserved for over 130 years. Hmm. You know, we, we don't understand all the, the stuff behind the scenes that you know, had to take place for all these things. To happen. Somebody was keeping them. Someone was preserving them. Dusting them. I don't know. <laughs> but they, they, they still had them. And clearly... Back then, a 130-year-old weapon today wouldn't be nearly as effective as the current weapons. But these, you know, swords were swords. Shields were shields. <clears throat> and, of course, these weapons would have also had a significant meaning to the people because King David was a very, very popular king. And like most, even though David had enemies when he was king... After he's dead, you know, his enemies, you know, the praise gets higher and higher. So they were praising David and thought of him very highly. And when they brought Joash and proclaimed him king and anointed him, it was met with great approval. I mean, not just, whew. The event showed that Joash had popular religious and military support and approval, which indicates they never did support Athaliah's reign. Hiding a child six years until they make their move is a long-term commitment. Now in verse 13, the narrative goes on. When Athaliah heard the noise of the garden of the people, she went into the house of the Lord and to the people. And when she looked, there was the king. However tall a seven-year-old would be. There was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. I mean, this was an event. And all the people in the land rejoicing and blowing the trumpets. So there's a big commotion, a big party going on. 
And then, I love this. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Uh Uh-huh. Right? (laughs) Then Jehoiadiah the priest commanded the captains who were set over the armor, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. They weren't going to kill her in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. Again, I can envision how a movie director may set up this scene. You know, all the pomp and all the celebration going on. Athaliah enters to see what was going on. I don't know if she knew what was going on or, or not. We have no idea what she suspected. But then she has the gall to tear her clothes and cry treason, treason. What did she do six years earlier? She killed everybody in the royal household. Everybody. And would have killed Joash had she known about it. She had no right to reign. She had no anointing from God. She had no anointing for her, no support of her countrymen. But she was calling out treason. But Jehoiadiah wasn't finished by just establishing the rightful king on the throne of Judah and eliminating Athaliah. Verse 17 shows that he was about honoring God and getting things reestablished between the people and their God. Verse 17. And Jehoiadiah made a covenant with the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. Verse 17 literally says he cut the covenant, which shows that the previous covenantal model was followed. Now, there was a covenant made between God and the nation as a reminder of the pledges made. And this is a renewal of those pledges. The covenant that God made with the nation of Israel was given in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. And here we read this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That happened for, we read earlier, that happened for a generation or two, and then it slid quite a bit. One commentator wrote on the renewal of the covenant that was found here in 2 Kings 11. He said, the renewal of the covenant with the Lord was necessary because under the former kings of the people had fallen away from the Lord and served Baal. So this renewal was a step of restoration which was needed. Another point that is made is that Athaliah in usurping the throne had broken the Davidic kingship line that was promised by God in 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 7, where God promised David. He said, and you and your your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So renewing the covenant was a reminder of God's promises to David that it would be fulfilled. Athaliah or anyone else not qualified would not be successful. David's throne will be established forever in Because of that, we have the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
She only broke the covenant for six years, but it probably seemed like a long time. If we were sitting there and Athaliah just came to power and we knew that it was going to last for six years, that would be a long six years. Then the first event after establishing Joash as the king, we have something similar happening to here that happened in Israel, and that is the cutting of the covenant was to destroy the house of Baal. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. Now we don't read that that was in the plan, but something was there to do that. I would imagine that Athaliah was a Baal worshiper. I mean, mother was Jezebel. And all the people went of the, of the land, went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. So like what occurred in the northern kingdom, now in the south the house of Baal is destroyed and the priest of Baal, priest of Baal is killed. And here in Judah, we see it was the people that went and did it. It shows there was public support for this destruction. The destruction that was 500 years late in coming, but it came. The next thing that we see to do, and the last thing that we have in this chapter, is now we seat Joash, the seven-year-old, as king. Now, clearly he had people to help him rule. (laughs) You wouldn't want that, or all you'd have to do is have candy all day long, right? Um, <clears throat> and he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced. And then I love this last line And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. The city was quiet. The city was quiet. When we follow God's commands, what happens? There's a quietness of our soul. Or is it chaos? What happened when Israel didn't and Judah didn't follow God's commands? They had chaos. And the same thing happens in our lives. If we follow God's commands, there will be a quiet, there will be a rest. When we don't, there will be chaos. If you've ever counseled somebody biblically, have you ever had chaos because they were following God's commands? Ain't going to happen. We can see it in Israel and we can see it in our lives. And we can expect the same thing in our lives. If we follow God's commands, there will be rest. If not, there will be chaos. And Galatians 5.16 states this. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. That means there's more. I warned you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against things there is no law. No one wants things like envy in your life or strife or jealousy or fits of anger or rivalries or dissensions or divisions or envy. And let you know, let's go and have a class on how to be more envious. All right? Or how to be more angry. Let's practice on fits of anger. Let's practice on jealousy. We don't want those things to have dominance in our lives. Doesn't love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness sound just a little better? Do we want our city, our life, to be quiet? That sounds a lot better than comes with the re- that what comes with the rejection of God's commands. Remember, and I have to remember this, and I'm sure you do too. God's commands are there for our benefit, not His benefit. They're to benefit us, so we can have. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I pray that our city would be quiet because we follow our God. Let's pray.